Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. It has been an unprecedented week, hasn't it? It really has. And there's an awful lot going on. I guess maybe the first thing we should say is that in this week's paper, as you might expect, we've got some pages of coverage of the Queen's life. We've got royal coverage which is, uh, shall I run through what we've yes, got so that people do. have an idea and then you could all rush out and buy the paper or subscribe, which obviously you're doing in your droves every week. Uh, we've got a piece by Jane Ridley on Queen Elizabeth II in history, a sort of as a leader. There's a lovely bit in it where she says that the Queen spoke to her racing manager almost every day and she thought the horses were, this is a quote, the greatest levellers in the world. And I just think, you know, I read a piece about about the Queen and her dogs and, you know, that she was always surrounded by lots of dogs, which actually apparently annoyed a lot of the other people around her because there's quite a lot of them. And they used to sort well, of maybe make that's why she did it. She sort of kept it was like a buffer zone. But that's what I would think, because I think mm. if you were someone like that, if anyone had asked me to write an in-depth article, about the Queen, Alex, which unaccountably nobody did. Yes. I would have said, of course, you would need to have dogs or cats or something like that, because almost everybody in the world is being weird with you at some level. Mm. They don't mm. want to necessarily. They don't mean to. But it's very, very difficult for anybody to have a straightforward, natural interaction, whereas the horses and the dogs and things will. They'll just bark at you or pee on your shoe 
or, you know, give you a kiss. There's no BS. That's what I'm going to say. They do not know that you are the queen. They don't. Exactly. So I can absolutely mm. understand that. Uh, and there's a piece by Claire Loudon on how uh, she was portrayed over the years in kind of books and in media. And on, and recently, of course, there's been so much of that in The Crown and all of that, which must be very odd <laughs> for the people who it's actually about. And a piece by Andrew Motion on being the poet laureate, which has a really nice story about he suggested a running a children's poetry competition for the Golden Jubilee. And she thought that was a great idea. And he suggested that they go and visit a school to launch it. And she thought that was a great idea too. So she went along and visited a school. She went with him. She seemed to enjoy it, um, even when it became clear that they arrived in the lobby of the school and it became clear that one of the kids had let off just before that a very, very smelly stink bomb. <laughs> just before the Queen arrived, took it in a stride, didn't notice, carried on as you were. That's a, that's a professional, isn't it? Can you imagine the trouble that child was in when they were found out? Can you imagine the assembly <laughs> at which the headmaster was saying, <laughs> we will stay here until someone owns up? We will stay I've here for all day 10 years. The rest of the term and your you've academic life. Exactly. Ooh. You've let yourself down. You've let your classmates down. You've let the whole school down. Maybe they were never found out. If that I mean, person if, is listening, it, do exactly. tell us. Exactly. If by any chance that person or a consort of that person is listening, I think there's probably an amnesty on letting stink bombs off in front of the Queen. Well, the thing is, the Queen was very good about it. Mm. She, of course, had she had, you know, perfect manners and, and knew how to behave. So, yeah. But do tell us if you were that person. Well, that sounds like really a suite of really interesting pieces and ending there with the Poet Laureate, the former Poet Laureate. And I see that Simon Armitage has just today, we're recording just a couple of days before you, the listeners, will hear this and has today issued his poem of remembrance of the queen and lucy it is rooted in plants and flowers and the garden so it's yes it's as I, it were right up our street or yes. down our garden path yeah i haven't read it but i've seen that it's called floral tribute isn't it yes yeah that sounds apt we do also have to mention that we've been talking about how the light gets in haven't we and yes. our live podcast there, the, it's actually been postponed. It was going to be the 17th and the 18th. So that's been postponed. It is now going to be October the 1st and 2nd. But we will still be there, most of us, I think. This is all still TBA, breaking news. But I think we have the same guests, which is great. And we will let you know about that uh, in the next couple of weeks. We do have other things in the paper this week, and we'll be talking about some of those in the course of the next three quarters of an hour or so. And this week, we're joined by Miranda France, who will be telling us about the travails of motherhood. And we'll be looking at the pick of this autumn's fiction with Toby Lichtig. But first, what has gone wrong since 1946, when Benjamin Spock opened his famous guide, Baby and Childcare, with the words, trust yourself, you know more than you think you do. Miranda France is asking that question and many more this week as she looks at ideas and ideals of motherhood in the light of six new books on this weighty subject. Miranda, many thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here. So you start by talking about guilt. No messing about. You get straight in there with a quote from Adrian Rich to the effect that motherhood is an institution where everybody is found guilty, which I think is from the, the 1970s, isn't it? Why do you think that we don't seem to have progressed beyond that? Well, it's interesting, and I'd love to know when the feeling guilty began. I think it's a combination of things, and it's partly another one of those things we can blame on the consumer society. 
if we think of the rise of mass advertising, I suppose, from the 50s onwards, um, we were all given an image of what a perfect mother and a perfect housewife looked like. And it's quite hard to shake that image, even though it's actually impossible to attain. And I think that another thing that feeds into that is that the things that we used to have to worry about, you know, let's go back sort of 100, 150 years about our children or, or, or just to the pre-antibiotic age, we used to have to worry a lot about diseases and injuries. And now our children are, although it may not seem it, they are safer than they've ever been. So I suppose that leaves a lot of sort of worry budget um, that was once directed towards thinking about safety to thinking about, uh, I mean, not to be glib, but thinking about sort of flute lessons and, uh, you know, is my child doing as well as, you know, little Rodney next door? Of course, more recently, we've got the, the inexorable rise of social media, which exacerbates all of those worries enormously. Yes, I was going to say that the whole thing is not helped, is it, by social media and all those inflated expectations. You've got a brilliant phrase. What is it? You have to keep looking at your frenemy sourdough. <laughs> yes, well, that is not. I would love to take credit for that phrase, but I think it's um, Eliane Glazer in her book who, oh, who yeah. talked about that. But yes, of course, it's true. I and mean, we only put, I actually steer well clear of Facebook, but you know, if we are using Instagram or any of these things, we only put the good stuff on, don't we? Um, we never say I'm a bit disappointed that my child has done so badly <laughs> in her GCSEs. Or, or that they I mean, it would be horrible to do that. And, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. tantrums on the bus. Yes, those are horrible. Um, so <laughs> yeah. so inevitably, only the good stuff goes on and then everybody sees that and and the worries that go along with being responsible for vulnerable people in your house can only be amplified. What you say there, you know, the wonderful line of the frenemies sourdough both frenemy and sourdough are actually concepts that one might just want to keep very far from one's life in motherhood or elsewhere but that's like a kind of modern manifestation of basically a sort of competition a competitiveness and I wonder has that always been there or has it become more and more acute do you think I do feel that women have been steered towards competition for some reason or other and I don't know if it's if there is also something in us that accepts that you know maybe we want to be the perfect daughter we want to do very well at school we want to to keep on doing very well and the trouble with motherhood is that you can't be the top of the class you can't be the perfect one it's not possible and so inevitably it can lead into a sort of cycle of uh, I don't want to say self-hatred because that's too strong, but, you know, feeling disappointed in yourself for not having done better. I think there's a piece in, it was a piece in the Sunday Times this weekend where the journalist had been told by her three children that they didn't think she was a very good mother. And of course, she oh. felt devastated. Of course. <laughs> I haven't, read, haven't read it yet. I thought I'd... Oh, no, I think I, I might not I'd read that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you... I should say I don't have children, but that would be straight to bed, no supper for me. for you or for them for everyone actually for for everyone in the house for for everyone I mean that would be I don't think that's helpful in the modern world I do not think that's a very helpful intervention (laughs) I might have said to them not at all and and so it should be although I think they're all in their 20s so they might be too old to send to bed but even (laughs) while reading these books one of the things I thought was I slightly missed the kind of bossy mother who said it's my way or the highway you know you are doing this because that's what I say and I wonder if that mother has been 
has been banished by all of the guidance and the advice that says you must do this, you must do that with your children. And we wouldn't dare send them to bed without supper anymore. I think this is also a sort of way where that woman has been, that type of woman, has become a kind of caricature, has been sort of pastiched and made a kind of figure of fun would be one way of looking at it. It's actually slightly more malevolent than fun in a way, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I suppose that comes from a good place, which is that we should be kind to our children and loving and listen to them. But when that begins to take over from other things, you know, other needs in the house, what what you would like to do at the weekend or, you know, how you would like to organise your time, then perhaps the children are moved too much into the centre of attention, you know, and I don't know if that's good for them or for anybody else. There's another concept from the 50s that you talk about, the good enough mother, which is that was coined by D.W. Winnicott. And as you say, it was designed to reassure mothers to say exactly as you said, to say, you don't have to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. But that hasn't quite taken root either, has it? Is it the you do mention at one point the kind of have it all attitude? That's a problem running throughout these books, I think, isn't it? The problem being that there's something a bit greedy about that or or, the, or that it's or not possible that, that it's, it's not, not possible, possible to have it all yes. it's, it's a myth and so you can't ever attain it yes that's true and I feel from my own childhood that there were quite a lot of sort of good enough or maybe sometimes not even quite good enough mothers around but there was a it didn't feel I mean maybe partly because I was brought up in the countryside and didn't we didn't know as many people as somebody in a city might know but there didn't seem to be quite such a sort of competition to be producing the perfect lasagna and um, getting the children with all, you know, their grades all nicely lined up. I mean, one one interesting thing, I was talking to a friend a few days ago who's um, a university lecturer, and he said that recently many more parents ring up to complain about their children's grades. I mean, surely that is taking caring about your your child too far when you're even at the stage that they're a university you're trying to intervene on the on their behalf well it's not caring about them is it it's it's the way you do it I suppose rather than letting them letting them get on with it I was struck by something that you quote from one of the books which I think is about artists and writers being um, yes it was something Ursula K. Le Guin's husband said, he said, one person cannot do two full-time jobs, writing is a full-time job and so is children, but two people can do three full-time jobs, which begins to seem to make sense. But you note in your piece that actually men are not mentioned much here, though most of the relationships, and as you say this, they're sort of heterosexual and the basis, as you say, is quite middle class. It's not really, it's not very intersectional, is it, any of it? Yes, yes. And um, that's certainly a lack. And inevitably quite a lot of authors uh, you know work in the media because that's the kind of background I suppose that's suggested the book to them but yep it's interesting that we don't talk about the good enough father I don't think I've ever heard that expression and it is curious that fathers come into it so little and um, one observational complaint that I found in several of the books was that the fathers don't know how to manage this sort of intricate system of mutual childcare and parties and and so on. And it's, as anybody who's got children would probably agree, that is quite an important system. I suppose it's one that's gone back decades, maybe even hundreds of years, the looking after somebody else's children so that they'll look after yours and uh, the looking after children together. And all of that is something that um, people find so helpful bringing up children. So it was quite interesting to see the mothers complaining that the fathers 
didn't have a handle on that. But I suppose it's inevitable because it's the person who is doing the bulk of the childcare who will make those organisations, those arrangements but, rather. And d- but d- those arrangements actually, when they when they work and when they're widened out a bit, that kind of moves into the area of allo parenting, doesn't it? Which comes up. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, I don't know much about it, but from what I read in Eliane Glazer's book, which is Motherhood, Feminism's Unfinished Business, this allo parenting describes and the arrangements made in much of the world by which, you know, it's, it's often not the mother who will look after the child. It might be an older sister, it might be neighbours, other relations. And yes, I think that we do experience a bit more of that than perhaps we realise in a country like Britain and in other similar countries, because we do ask our friends to look after our children. You know, will you pick up, you know, Sally on Tuesday and I'll look after Johnny on Wednesday? And I think it's great when those sort of arrangements are supported, you know, by councils in the area of London where I brought my children up. There was a place you could go to every day from lunchtime onwards for two or three hours with your children. And it was not only somewhere where they played, but it was also somewhere where you might pick up a pamphlet about domestic abuse or about something else important to know. And and of course, it was not Mm. restricted just to the middle classes. It was for anybody because the danger is that we end up mixing with people like ourselves or joining groups that are for people like us. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because the thing about the flute lessons, what you're saying is not only is that very middle class and expensive and kind of exhausting and competitive and all of that business, but it's very individualized. You're not really, even if you are doing it in a group, it's a very similar group. Whereas the thing that you're suggesting is a place just where everybody who lives there can just go and hang out a bit, which sounds a bit more relaxed. Yes, absolutely. Go and muck in. And I did, I mentioned in the article that that sort of, you know, 40 years ago, say when I was a child, perhaps the only extracurricular thing you did in the week was go to brownies. And so you're in a, you know, you're in a big drafty church yeah. with lots of other, with lots of other children. And I was saddened by something Eliane Glazer said, I have to paraphrase, but she said something like British and American societies have become too individualized really to contemplate the idea of bringing up children in a more sort of community-based way, which is sad if it's true, because I think we all lose out. We, we isolate ourselves more, which makes us more inclined to fret over our frenemies sourdough. And, you know, we don't see what's going on with other people and we don't all muck in together. It's interesting that you say that in this vein of both your review and this conversation and obviously some of these books. But I mean, I, I notice it as a person who, as I said, doesn't have children, that you might sort of be consigned in some narratives to the kind of person who just has no interest or indeed involvement with children. And for lots of people who don't have biological children, that's not the case at all. Or adoptive children, they don't have their children under their direct care. That's not the case at all. You're often very rooted in other children's lives in your family. I have to say, this comes with a caveat. I did recently have a very small child staying with me who I felt had got into tremendous trouble. I heard her being really told off for sticking her tongue out at her mum. And I realised <laughs> I taught her to do it and said it was okay. So Uh-oh. I do appreciate... That's the downside that, of... <laughs> that people who can just give back children at the end of the day, are they bring their own risks with them. But I have often felt that this this sort of drive to say, have you had your children? Why haven't you had children? Who is there? Mm. It, it's, it ignores mm. the reality of what life should be in many ways, which is that other people's children 
will have a profound effect on my life and the life of society in general, and that we should all play a hand in caring for and looking after and loving those children. I do agree. And, and there is one book in the review that sort of engages with that idea a bit, which is the only novel. Um, it's by mm. the Mexican writer Guadalupe Natal called Stillborn, translated by Rosalind Harvey. And it considers various ideas about whether or not to have children. The narrator of the novel actually gets herself sterilised at the start of the novel because she is so keen to avoid having children. Meanwhile, her friend is having IVF and becomes pregnant, but with a disabled child. There are all kinds of questions about who looks after children. You know, should Are we involved in other people's child rearing, child raising, even though we, we may not have children ourselves? I mean, there's all kinds of interesting ideas there. And there are, of course, millions of books about parenting, especially the ones that tell you what to do and what not to do. Would you recommend any or all of these ones? Maybe not to new mothers, because they're definitely not sort of how-to, are they? Actually, I don't um, know if we would recommend those ones. Would you recommend them kind of in general? Of these particular books? Yeah. I'm not sure I would recommend them to... I'm just quickly going over them in my mind. <laughs> I think, actually, the one about artists and writers was perhaps the one that gave me the most optimism about childcare. And it quoted a psychoanalyst whose name I'm now not going to be able to remember, but she said one of the problems with trying to carry on writing, perhaps or working, you know, in a sort of self-employed capacity, is that you look back yearningly on, on the kind of complete person you were before, this person that's been disrupted by childcare. And, and actually that's not a useful way of thinking about it. And I found her book really had some this is Julie Phillips the baby on the fire escape it's called isn't it mm. or the pram on the fire escape and um I thought there were really unusual imaginative ideas there about um incorporating a child into a working life I mean not least um the quote that you mentioned from Charles Le Guin who said you know two people can do three full-time jobs mm. which I thought was quite a, an enlightened observation really interesting mm, absolutely and just while we've got you, Miranda, before we go, we must mine your amazing wealth of knowledge of Hispanic <laughs> literature. I'm doing a right turn here, I'm afraid. And just asking you about Javier Marias, who died the other day. I don't know. I mean, he was well known, but he was definitely a great novelist, wasn't he? Do you think he was underrated? I mean, he's enormously known in Spain, like, to the extent that at least one Spanish friend has said, has told me that they got a little bit fed up with him being such a towering figure. I think he is appreciated here, isn't he? I mean, he is a, a great writer. And um, what was so interesting about him was that he pulled off this very clever trick of combining quite highbrow ideas about philosophy with a sort of um, B-movie approach to, to writing, a kind of thriller um, mm. style. And in that respect, he's a bit like a combination of Borges and maybe Almodovar, you know, and that makes him very, very readable, enjoyable to read, fascinating to read. You're never quite sure. He writes these very long serpentine sentences. And I know his translator, Margaret Jill Costa, has said that's quite a challenge to translate. But um, these long sentences, you never quite know where they're going to end up. But he's very compulsive and interesting to read. And I'm looking forward um, to, you know, to going back and reading some of the ones I haven't got to yet. You very mm. much have that sense, don't you, of being in the middle of, you know, in a way, the old fashioned novel of ideas, but also a spy book. 
And that's yeah. like, it's just kind of yeah. one, wonderful. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I would not a writer. I, I would claim any intimate knowledge of, but I've so enjoyed the books of his that I've read, particularly the books in series. But I can honestly say, I don't think there's another writer like him. I can't put no. him, you know, put him on a par or in a pool with anyone else. He's a very singular kind of writer. I agree. And it's interesting that he described himself as an English writer in camouflage. And he was a great fan of English writing. You know, he had taught translation at Oxford University and his protagonists are often translators themselves or, or ghostwriters or, you know, interpreters of some kind or another. I think he was a great admirer of Iris Murdoch and he translated Shakespeare, he translated Stern. So I think we can partly claim him a little bit for us as well, if that's uh, not too not too cheeky. Well, that's wonderful for him to be an English writer in, what did you say, in camouflage? In camouflage, so I, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, if he said it, then then I think we can. Um, many thanks, Miranda, for joining us with your thanks wealth so of much, knowledge. And oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Still to come on the show, we're joined by the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lishtig, to fill us in on the best novels to read this autumn. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. It's nearly autumn, the season of the falling of the leaves, Halloween merchandise, and even the first sighting of the Christmas tins of Quality Street. And just as reliably, the annual book glut. Novels are arriving with terrifying frequency, and any fiction editor must be hard-pressed to keep up. We decided to talk to our very own, the TLS's Toby Lishtig, to find out how he's keeping tabs on what's coming up and some of the highlights from this week's paper. Hi, Toby. Hi, Alex. Hi, DC. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Very well, am I you. Am I right to say that you are beneath a teetering stack, as it were? Well, I mean, yes, I am. I mean, in fact, really what happens is, you know, is the teetering stack comes in early. September is the deluge, but all those books are arriving in June and July. And that's when you're really kind of actually, you know, falling over books and having them land on your head. Hopefully by now, the idea is they've already been sent out. And maybe even the reviews have come in. Yes. But I am definitely deluged with copy and interesting analyses of all these different sorts of books coming in. I mean, it's not obviously it's not just fiction, but there is something about fiction for September and early October. There is so much coming in. And it's in, fact, in fact, it's not just this month. There will be more stuff coming in next month as well. Big novels, you know, likes of George Saunders, Camilla Shamsey at the end of the month. So, yeah, it is a very busy time. And I feel like I say every year it's particularly busy this year. And yet it seems particularly busy this year. We'll, well keep track I, I, of the last 10 years and in 10 years we'll ask yes. you again and you'll say, no, this year has been particularly busy, I think. Exactly. I remember when we were talking earlier in the summer about summer reading, we feel, it feels like we have you at seasonal inflection I could be, I could, I could be your seasonal guest, I like Exactly, that. and I remember you expressing a huge desire to be alone on a desert island, <laughs> shipwrecked. Yes, I got into some trouble about that one, uh, <laughs> domestically. Well, so. I was going to say, I, I, feel, know, not, I feel like from, I put the wrong emphasis on. Surely. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, you know, here it is. So Toby won't be a fiction editor in 10 years' time. He will have got himself into kind of, we were just talking about Javier Marias. He might be the king of Redonda by then as Javier yes. Marias. Oh, yes, uh, I'd love that. Was. So he may have built his sort of island fastness by then and got out of it. Um, you mentioned Carmela Shamsi there. Uh, she was one of the ones on, on my list. We talked about Ian McEwen 
last week, and I know that we've both read it and, and I've interviewed him this week myself, Robert Galbraith, Robert Harris, Celeste Ng, John Banville, Kate Atkinson, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, they were people who came to my mind without me even looking anything up. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Barbara Kingsolver, John Irving, Elizabeth Strout, not the one that's, that's shortlisted for the booker, but the new one. Mm. Um, uh, Is it Lucy by the Sea, it's called? Is yes, right? exactly. Yes. Yeah, Lucy by the sea. Well, John that sounds Coe nice. Out next month. It's, it's, yeah, yes, there you go, Lucy by the Sea. It's, it's about Lucy by the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> Only bettered for our very own Lucy if she wrote a book called Lucy in the Garden. That mm. would be that'd be a In a Garden thing. by the Sea. In a Garden by the Sea. Can I ask just... The follow-up to the follow-up. ...completely selfish purposes, what the, what the new Barbara Kingsolver is? Because uh, I, yes, I do quite you, love you, her. You can. I mean, I haven't read it yet, so uh, I'm not quite sure. It is called... Ah, I've forgotten. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I put you on the no, spot there. that's absolutely fine. It can be a um, lovely surprise for everyone. I didn't know she had a new one coming. No, yeah, she does. It's, it's, it's out no. next month, and it is called Demon Copperhead. It's not a kind of revisiting of flight behaviour. It's not about the Anthropocene era and, and the, the, the environment and stuff like that. But she always wrestles with sort of big themes, doesn't she? Mm, um mm. And I actually am not quite sure what this one is about. I've, I've got a feeling it's a, the, the Copperhead is a play on David Copperfield. So I think there's a kind of a, there's a Dickensian element to it. But more than that, I can't tell you. I'll have to wait for the piece to come in Watch in about this a month. space. Yeah. Yes. Well, Toby, what are you particularly looking forward to? And what are you reading at the moment? Well, actually, that's a, that is a good question. At the moment, as in literally sort of today and yesterday, I'm reading a book called Untold Microcosms, which is a collection of sort of essays and both fiction and non-fiction of Latin American writers responding to exhibits in the British Museum in the permanent collection. I'm partly doing that because I'm chairing an event about it for Hay in London later this month. It's also very, very interesting. The idea is you go and you look at an object and you wonder firstly why it's still in the British Museum when it you know, should be back in Peru. And secondly, what it means. And yeah, they've basically been given free reign to respond to these objects in whatever way they want. So yeah, I'm reading that. I've just finished the new Camilla Shanti novel called Best of Friends, which is out later this month, which I found it to be a novel of two halves. I, I absolutely love the first half. And then it's sort of, that's set in Karachi in 1988. And you've got this sort of follow-up half where, where the best friends of the title, who are 14 uh, in the first section, they're grown-ups, they're sort of in their mid-40s. It's set about two or three years ago in London. And it sort of doesn't follow through on its uh, on all the wonderful things that it's set up. I perhaps shouldn't say too much more for now. We'll be running a review on it in a couple of weeks' time. But I, she's a fantastic writer, Camilla Shamsi. I thought her previous book, Home for Fire, which was, I think, shortlisted for the booker, was really good. This, yeah, read it for the first half alone would be my takeaway from that. So that was very good. And I then, know that recently, I've, we were just mentioning, I know that you have read the Ian McEwan. And yes. I've, I, I've read it also, and it is a book that you really enjoyed, I think. I did. I did. And I've sort of, he's one of those authors where I've become a bit completist about him. I think I've read pretty much everything he's ever written. And I, which doesn't necessarily mean he's my favourite author at all. It's just sort of, you know, the new Ian McKim book comes in and I read it. And, but I don't think I've actually enjoyed or been as impressed by uh, a book by him for a very, very long time. I, I had a couple of like niggling problems about the kind of, almost the sort of perfection of it. There's something quite schematic about it and the way I know you talked about it on the podcast already, so I'm not going to go into kind of great detail, but the way in which sort of history plays out against 
the domestic and the sort of the political and you know is inflected by the personal and sort of it's almost as if you can't have a kind of personal crisis in this book without you know the Berlin Wall sort of falling down or Chernobyl happening or it being in the middle of a Cuban missile crisis and yet I found I have thought about it I think I finished it about three weeks ago and I have thought about it an enormous amount it's really stayed on with me and the characters have stayed on with me and the the way he's taken this life this sort of boy taken from childhood into his 70s which is you know where the book ends and it obviously it follows roughly Ian McEwan's trajectory in terms of the world around him although not necessarily the character but yes I was actually hugely impressed so it's one of those books I sort of I've become increasingly impressed by since I've put it down if that's possible. One tiny detail that I liked perhaps more than anything was the fact that you central character wants to be a poet and then you meet him a little bit later and he's doing very well. He's gone from sort of what feels like failure and impoverishment. And he's rather sprawncy, spring in his step, money in the bank. And it's because, alas, he's writing greeting card <laughs> messages. And I think that was a salutary lesson for us all. Um, <laughs> give, up on, give up on literary fiction. Forget it. But he, li- well, he likes it, doesn't he? He likes real it. Job. He does he, like he, it. He, don't yeah. give up on it, but don't <laughs> expect to get, you know, any type jag on the basis of it. Anyway, uh, as you say, we have talked quite a lot about about Ian McEwan, but this week's pages, Toby, you have two Booker shortlisted novels reviewed, don't you? I do, yeah. So there's about that. So yeah, there's kind of a book of theme running through this week's pages. So the first fiction page, in fact, yeah, we've got two pieces, twins on a page, and they are both Booker shortlistees, very newly shortlisted. One, is it's a review by Kate McLaughlin and it's a book by a Sri Lankan author called, and forgive my pronunciation, Shehan Karunatilaka called The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. It's his second book. His first came out, I think, 12 years ago. It's called Chinaman. And it was about, amongst other things, cricket in Sri Lanka. Um, and in fact, Kate McLaughlin uh, says this is perhaps the best novel that will ever be written about Sri Lankan cricket. Yes, I know. Um, I love that. And I actually thought, I may be, you know, maybe that, not that many people in the market for a novel about Sri Lankan cricket, but I am one of them. There so I can't wait to read it, I must say. <laughs> and Kate McLaughlin absolutely loves this new one. It's also it's, yeah, set in Sri Lanka. It looks back upon the terrible civil war that ravaged the country for many decades. I think it started about 30 years ago. I think the book itself is set in 1990. It's set in the afterlife, which isn't necessarily what I always look for in a novel. I mean, I have, I'm sure I've read some, <laughs> some fiction I've enjoyed set in the afterlife, but it's not, that doesn't tend to be my kind of thing, but she makes it sound really, really interesting. And it's narrator has recently been murdered and he's looking back on what's happened. And he's also got a week in which to find out who killed him and to help his friends publish incriminating photos that he's taken, which he hopes, and this is, this is a line from the novel, he hopes these photos will do for Sri Lanka's civil war what the naked naked armed girl did for Vietnam. And I think it sounds very politically astute, very beautifully written, quite funny in places. And well, you can go and read Kate McLaughlin's review, but it seems quite obvious why it's been shortlisted for the prize, because it, it really feels like it could, you know, it's, it's a possible winner, I think. It sounds really, really interesting. I mean, it, it's actually not even the first or second book to be set in the afterlife that has been shortlisted and actually eventually successful in one case for the booker. I think it, you mentioned George Saunders earlier, Lincoln yes. in the Bardo, <laughs> set the in the afterlife, and also Elif Shafak's novel. Yes, 10 uh, minutes, was, 15 seconds or whatever it's called, yes. 
I mean, Toby, you see so many novels. And when I'm thinking about books like the recent Women's Prize for Fiction winner by Ruth Ozeki, where a book is a narrator, your recent books by Louis Erdrich, for example, there are these different narrative viewpoints seem to be very much at the fore. It's, it's not a new thing, obviously, but they do seem to be really capturing people's interest at the moment. Is that is that right, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that is right. And I I wonder, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, I wonder whether we're sort of slightly wandering away from the autofiction craze now and whether this is the sort of, this is the kind of logical next step that we're sort of, I mean, not that there isn't still plenty of autofiction and excellent autofiction around, but I feel like that sort of had its heyday maybe two or three years ago. And we're now kind of thirsting for different sorts of eyes and different sorts of first persons and whether it's almost a kind of reaction, <laughs> whether this is the anti-autofiction movement. I guess only sort of time will, will, will allow us to, to look back and see whether that's true. But does, does that make sense to you? you I, know, I know well. It, I know that you're an enormous fan, as am I, of last year's Booker Winner, The Promise by Damon Gelbert. Yes. You know, and that's a, a kind of split point of view narrative amongst this family. But I remember interviewing him and him saying the breakthrough for him was when he adopted a sort of filmic style. He'd been writing a screenplay and he felt stuck with the novel, but the moment he started thinking about it in terms of film, where you can jump between points of view. And that I think was also a point at which he started writing from a point of view of two jackals. These sort of interesting, it's not just not having an omniscient narrator, it's also, I suppose, perhaps yielding the idea of that kind of who might be a narrator or a witness to something. Exactly. And of course, you know, this is, you know, it's been done before as well. You know, I think of John McGregor in Reservoir 13, who had that kind of roving eye, which took in jackals, rabbits. (laughs) It was from the point of view of of everything there. I think the filmicness of that novel is really marked, isn't it? And I, yeah, I wonder whether there is, there is a kind of new movement towards that element of narration. That sounds like a wonderful opening out because also that's one of the things fiction can do isn't it it really it can anything any creature anything can narrate you can have a a story told from the point of view of a doorknob and the doorknob might not be a reliable narrator I mean that's kind of one of the wonders of it isn't it everyone now go away and write a story (laughs) written from the point of view of a doorknob they're quite static but I suppose I suppose yeah we have have we tried yet but they are rarely (laughs) reliable they are rarely Again, when we think about um, earlier in the summer when we were talking, we were all talking about Percival Everett, weren't we? And we didn't anticipate that the trees would end up on the Booker shortlist. That book's reviewed by Michael Lapointe, isn't it? It's, it is, yeah. I mean, he's a really interesting author, Percival Everett. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see him on the shortlist, partly because he's, he's, you know, he's been around a very long time. This is his 22nd novel. Mm. Like no mean feat just to write 22nd novels. A lot of them have been very good. And he's not very well known in this country. There's been a bit of a revival of his work, partly because of Influx Press, excellent small press, who published The Trees. And they've been bringing out two or three of his backlist. We actually had a piece, I think a couple of years ago, by a reviewer called Aaron Keeble, which looked at a couple of the backlists being republished by Influx and giving a kind of broader overview of his career. But he's a really, really interesting author. I mean, I've read I Am Not Sidney Poitier and a wonderful little novel called Glyph about... American academia. And he sort of seems to write very different sorts of novels. I mean, the, the themes are similar. He, he looks at America, Americana, capitalism, race, what it is to be an African-American in an incredibly racist country. 
but his settings are often quite varied. And this one, the trees, which has been shortlisted, is it sort of takes, well, as Michael Lapointe tells us in his piece, it takes the lynching of Emmett Till in the in the 1950s, that famous and utterly horrific event, as its sort of starting point. But then it becomes this gory, phantasmagorical. I mean, there's also sort of there's not quite afterlife, but there are strange, otherworldly happenings, aren't there? There are these bodies found horribly mutilated of white people, but with black people, black bodies next to them. And this sort of chain of gory events goes right up to the White House, as it tells us. And it sounds playful as well as He's, really, really nasty. It does, yes, it doesn't. It, that sounds as though that would be impossible, doesn't it? But I read I Have Not Sidney Poitier, and it takes in a lot of, there's some fairly horrible, not as bad as that, but, but there's some very, um, as you say, he's dealing with some very strong stuff, but it's such a light... It's not a light touch. That makes it sound as though he's trivialising it. It's very nimble and very sharp and can be very funny as well in the middle of what you might think would be a very, you know, difficult or awkward situation. I thought it was brilliant. I'm not Sidney Poitier, I have to say. Yeah, it's really, really good. Alex, have you have you read any Everett? Well, I've read this and I loved it. I mean, I thought it was, I couldn't believe that it was as funny as it was from the sort mm. of get-go. And what I really liked about it was it was proper sort of, polyphonic writing I mean it's just so many different voices and its pace as Michael Lapointe makes this point its pace is really rattles along doesn't it I haven't read it does it feel mm. like a detective story I mean is that, a, is that a, a point of... absolutely so yeah absolutely so and you also have that kind of I suppose very wrong footing feeling that because this is you know not only inspired I mean it's representing you know this terrible event and this terrible chapter in America's history, and should you really be feeling this entertained by it? And I think his the discomfort that he engenders in the reader is very productive. Actually, is very interesting. So I yeah, I really liked it, and I recommend I, I thought, it to you both. I, I thought Michael's final line in the piece is very compelling. I'm actually going to read it to you. He says, "We can't get our bearings in this novel of relentless, omnipresent violence—a bloody fantasy that, for Black Americans, has always been a reality." There was something very salient about that point, the idea that, you know, it's this kind of ridiculously gory, over-the-top fantasy, but of course, you know, it is also the reality as well. Yeah, yeah. Toby, thank you so much. Oh, I will just say, I think you let me write a review too on your page. (laughs) (laughs) I was was, was Alex write a review. I was was quite surprised you were going to sign off there, because I thought thought we'd want to have a little chat about that. I actually... Toby didn't let me. I sent it in while he was having a day off. <laughs> <laughs> I slipped back from holiday and it was there on the page and I just didn't have time to get rid of it. So with apologies to all our listeners and readers. Um, yes, the, the, the review stuck in. It's a very, very good piece. It's a brilliant piece uh, on a novel by Emma Donoghue called Haven. And rather than me trying to praise Alex's review, I'm just going to let Alex tell us all what the book's about and what well, she thought about. I just will quickly say, I think think I've actually mentioned it before, but I will say that it is about monks in medieval Ireland setting off to found a monastery on Skellig Michael, which is just off the coast of Kerry and is particularly striking. It's a real place that you can go to, that you must climb up all these stone steps. And really the novel says, well, who put the stone steps there and how did they live? And it's a kind of fascinating, because it's a historical novel, as it were, 
one of the novels of hers that it most resembles is Room because it is about this sort of claustrophobic feeling of people trapped somewhere and possibly malign influence on them. And it's really compelling, actually. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, sounds really interesting. Possibly not her best book by the sound of things, but nonetheless, very, very worth reading. Yeah, very much, very much. I really, I enjoyed it a lot. And also potential survival tips for if one finds oneself or certainly, you know, things not to do. Don't necessarily, <laughs> if you are starving on, a, on your desert island, Toby, be careful when you're foraging for mussels. Okay, I'm going to bear that in mind. Right, just bear that in mind. It's a good note for everyone, I think. It is. Thank you so much, Toby Lishtig. Thank you for asking me. time for this week our thanks go to Miranda France and Toby Lichtig and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.